Well, as I mentioned, Doug Ford celebrating a landslide victory in yesterday's provincial election in Ontario after he won 83 of the 124 seats up for grabs. That's more than the 76 he won in 2018. It was a bad night for the NDP, not quite as bad as it was for the Liberals. Uh, Stephen Del Duca resigned. He lost his seat. He didn't. He lost a seat he had lost in 2018 as well. Andrea Horvath of the NDP won her seat, but also chose to, chose to step down as leader uh, after winning 31 seats. That's down from nine last time. The Liberals, just eight seats, one more than 2018, no official party status. They got a lot of votes, but it just didn't work for them. So after 16 years in power, things not looking good for the Ontario Liberals. Doug Ford today, well, as always, the winner calls for unity. Number one you know, message I want to get out, uh, it's time for unity. We want to make sure we unite this province, we want to move forward, because it's not us versus, versus people down the street, it's Ontario versus every jurisdiction in the world. Doug Ford there today, sounding magnanimous after his win, uh, as one would. Uh, now, keep in mind, this was a politician who was booed at the Raptors' victory parade after they won the NBA championship a few years ago. So how did he manage to turn things around so unequivocally? Well, to look at the results, the impact, uh, what could have been behind the success and the low turnout, I'm joined now by Richard Johnston. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for your time on this Friday evening. Hi there. So, you know, this was a big win. I don't think even the polls predicted it would be so decisive. Uh, what do you think made the difference? What were Ontarians voting for last night? Well, the status quo, basically. I think entirely too much is made of the scale of the win. The fact of the matter is that net, he gained 0.3 percentage points of the popular vote. It's essentially a total replay of the last time around as far as the conservatives are concerned with uh, the the change was that even though he evidently was a weak leader not happy with his performance Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals gained just enough votes to hand six NDP seats over to the conservatives meanwhile there were there were nine seats that went missing from the conservative caucus mostly because Doug Ford kicked them out. There were a couple of vacancies that weren't filled. And so over half of the apparent seat gain from the standings at the dissolution were just returning seats to the conservative fold that had been there four years ago. And then the other half, or 40% or so, was the result of vote splitting induced by the modest but not sufficiently great rise of the liberals at the expense of the NDP. That's, Certainly that was... Be- that's the election day story. It's not like there's some resounding stampede that 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 uh, that the very large number of seats that Doug Ford won, and he surely did, reflects some kind of Ontario-wide consensus. <laughs> Uh, certainly the voter turnout would suggest that. I mean, voter turnout is one of those weird things, but 43%, that is abysmal. That is it abysmal is. in it, a democracy. It, it, it's, 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 I, I'm absolutely sure it is the worst amongst provincial electorates since COVID. I mean, not that, the, not that the turnout in any of the provincial elections in the last couple of years have anything to write home about, frankly, and that's true in BC too. But 43% is is. We're starting to look at what Americans get in congressional off-year elections. It's it's dismal. Uh, whether it made any difference, the only thing that occurs to me is that 
some of those voters might have gone to Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals if he could give them something to get excited about. Yeah, that seemed to be the the big problem here was that uh, oftentimes in an election like this one, where a lot of the coverage is about the horse race, a lot of the polls are indicating it's a foregone conclusion, it's really up to the opposition parties to drive up interest, to build some momentum. And clearly in this election, neither the NDP or the Liberals managed to do that. And they spent most of their time trying to persuade each other that their side was strategically in a better position as opposed to giving reasons why Doug Ford should not return as premier. They just failed to do that. I did drag up these numbers. So in BC in 2020, 53.9%. In the last federal election, 62.6%. In the last US election, 66.1%. I mean, we I brought this up off the top. You know, the Australians, we always point to them when we get dismal uh, turnout rates. Uh, do you think mandatory voting would be something that would work here? Oh, oh it could. I mean, it's not going to happen. The, no. the circumstances that produced mandatory voting in Australia were very peculiar, had to do with vote splits uh, on the right. Uh, and to this day, the liberal coalition side of Australian politics would actually be happy to get rid of mandatory voting. It's labor that wants to keep it. So it's a, it's, it's an, I think it's part of what makes Australian elections quite special. There are some other characteristics as well. I think they're generally more satisfying operations than the one we, ones we run. But the politics of making uh, voting compulsory is very peculiar, very difficult. When you look at this election, I mean, we're heading into a a conservative uh, leadership race, or we are in a conservative leadership race federally. We will, the membership uh, deadline is tonight in just a few hours. Uh, When you look at this Ontario election, is there any advice out there? Is there anything to learn for parties in other provinces and uh, for federal parties? Well, I think that the thing that commentators on the plight of the federal conservatives keep forgetting they commonly refer to the difficulty of conservatives for winning Ontario. They, they, they forget that the government of Ontario is a conservative government and that Doug Ford found the key to victory and it wasn't hard to see. He he built an electoral coalition whose base, to be sure, is in the more rural and small town parts of the province, uh, the less diverse constituencies and so on, but he could not have won the province had he not able to make himself credible to large numbers of voters in the GTA and even on the fringes of the city of Toronto itself. So they should be looking at him and asking themselves, what, what's, what, is the, what is his coalition? It's got a populist tinge to it. It surely does. Um, it's, it is very conservative, probably more conservative than many of the people who actually vote for him. But it is not ethnically exclusive. He doesn't play race cards. He doesn't play xenophobic cards. And uh, and yet he wins, you know, enough. Uh, if if the federal liberals could reproduce his coalition in Ontario, and there's no reason why they can't, they'll win it all. So, you know, I think I think they a, a, a conservative party, a national conservative party that is seriously conservative, does have the populist tinge to it, doesn't have to lose Ontario necessarily. Uh, I think they're they're doing their level best in the leadership campaign right now <laughs> to to undermine their appeal downstream, and it's particularly striking that they're doing so because in many ways, on paper, Pierre Polyev is the guy. You know, he has actually he much of the, many of the characteristics. He's not a social conservative. He doesn't play xenophobic cards. Uh, I think he's overplaying the cards that he is playing, but in many ways, his appeal 
is a lot like Doug Ford's, except that he's injected a notion, a degree of toxicity into his own party. Yeah, there seems to be little toxic about Doug Ford, if you put it that way. He's sort of the eternal optimist. It's interesting to note how many uh, ridings that the conservatives in uh, progressive conservatives won last night that voted for the liberals in the federal election. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk a bit more about that federal conservative leadership race. As I mentioned, uh, candidates have until 11.59 Eastern to sign up memberships. So just about another hour and 45 minutes to go. And uh, we'll get, a, we'll get a, an opinion on how that race has gone so far, where it'll go from here after this. Richard Johnston, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of British Columbia, is our guest this half hour. We were talking about Doug Ford's win in Ontario last night and some of the uh, some of the what other party leaders, uh, conservative hopefuls, federal conservative leadership hopefuls could take away from uh, from Doug Ford's big win uh, in Ontario. So, uh, Professor Johnston, the the membership drive is nearly over. I guess that means we'll stop seeing all those tweets about it, thankfully. Um, it's Pierre Polyev's 43rd birthday today, and he was still saying his second biggest birthday wish is for people to buy a membership. So you know how important it is. Uh, what do you make so far of the membership drive, and why, does it, why is it so important in this race? Well, it's everything uh, in the sense that, you know, it's a universal party ballot. Uh, I would look at, um, be interested to see how the membership distributes, distributes across constituencies, because remember, constituencies will be weighted equally in this. So right. uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't suffice just to have more members than everybody else. You have to have more members in more places. Uh, right. And my, my hunch is that it's still probably Polyaris' race to lose, I think it's pretty much a given that he will lose ground over the coming weeks and months. That's just the way it is. That you know, you, you get sort of a coverage bonus uh, because you're the new thing, and people focus on the positives initially. But inevitably, over time, other candidates start coming up with reasons not to vote for the front runner, and the media, uh, seeking to sort of separate themselves from the propaganda, start looking for. Uh, issues with the front runner as well. And so I, I should think it will narrow over the coming weeks. But I would be shocked if any of the alternatives to Polyever could really put together a coalition that could block his leadership. Yeah, I, the one person who seems to be at least making a lot of noise about how many members he signed up is Patrick Brown, who claims to have signed up 150,000. Uh, as you mentioned, if they're all in Brampton, it doesn't really matter. But right. um, he signed up a lot of people. Overall, though, the Conservative Party, we don't know the exact numbers yet, but they're saying that there's been uh, some 400,000 memberships uh, that have been agreed. That's a big jump from from the last time around. So it could make it a pretty interesting and competitive race, perhaps if it goes to a second second ballot, for instance. Yeah, I mean... Or maybe. Or maybe. I mean, the fact is that, aside from the Liberals in, in 2013, most of the of the leadership races in, in recent memory have been pretty close, as a matter of fact. Um, that the, the, the parties are, but especially the Conservative Party, are quite internally divided over, in some sense, existentially what they are and what they want to be. I don't have the sense, though, that people who represent the older brand of conservative have the jam, have the people on the ground, uh, unless they are being very strategic about how they marshal the resources and whether they can get uh, enough people into the broad mass of writings that would be, say, relatively low membership writings. 
So what happens now? The memberships are sold. Uh, the ballots will go out, we presume, in July. We'll know who's won in September. Uh, what do the candidates get up to between now and the time that those ballots go up or go out? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think there's two things. I mean, first of all, it's, it's now more of a persuasion exercise than it was until now. At the, at the moment, in some sense, it's primarily a mobilization exercise, getting people signed up in the first place. So if it's persuasion, it's persuasion in a very broad mass of potential supporters. But now that the, now that the membership is about to close, you're going to have to start making converts. Or the other possibility, and we, again, don't know how enthusiasm distributes itself across the spectrum, uh, but... If, for example, Mr. Polyev has actually signed up the bulk of the new members, if many of them are kind of accidental members, not terribly enthusiastic, or they've been brought in by, let's say, brokers of some form or another, they might not actually cast their ballots. Frankly, that strikes me as an unlikely characterization of the kind of people who are signing up to support him. But that's where we're at. Either, you know... You have to be sure that your own folks, however many they are, turn out. But at this point, I think uh, leadership candidates are going to have to start more and more trying to persuade the persuadable in the larger ranks of the party. It'll be interesting to see, for example, if Polyev backs off a little bit on the intensity of his populist appeals, uh, particularly looking forward beyond the leadership convention, because he, he has basically enabled his opponents inside the party to write the script for campaign advertisements against him by the liberals and new democrats next time around that's a problem and he needs to i think he needs to start countering that now we have about a minute left do you see any attrition between now and the time the ballots go out are we going to see anyone drop off if they just haven't signed up enough members and and know they don't really stand a hope to win um i think it depends on their taste for combat i mean in some sense now is not the time to drop off. I mean, you might you might see some amount of negotiation between now and then, but to the extent that people have paid money, obviously these things are anonymous at some level, but to the extent that people have paid money and taken the trouble to join the party in the interest of a particular candidate, that candidate can't assume that somehow or another his or her supporters are automatically transferable to whichever of the of the remaining alternatives the candidate would like them to go to. So I think that this that because it's a secret ballot and all, I think that you're better off if you want to have influence down the road, you're better off staying in the race. Obviously if you have no resources, if you just nobody's going to, you know, you've got no money, you've got no time, then you have to think about it. But tactically speaking, you really want to stay in the race. Pretty much down. It's going to, be an, going to be an interesting summer. Richard Johnston, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.